0: Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Todd A., Dave V., and Andy J. On the show today is Russell Hallbauer, CEO and Director of Taseco Mines, an operating copper-focused producer with various stage assets in Canada and the United States. Aside from the current and near-term producing assets, Taseco holds an impressive pipeline of copper-gold assets in development. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TGB and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol TKO. Russell, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you for inviting me, Andrew. Well, Russell, I understand you've been with TSECO for probably near 15 years now. Um, Can you tell the audience about your ventures prior to TSECO and then tell us why the company really attracted you?
1: Uh, Well, I'm a mining engineer by training. I graduated uh, from Colorado School of Mines a long time ago now. If you look at it, it's back in 1978. I joined uh, Newmont of Canada uh, working at the um, Similkameen Copper Mine, which is now part of the um, Copper Mountain stable of operations. I worked there for four or five years, and then I, I joined uh, Tech Resources in 1983. Went into the um, coal business till ooh, 19... what year was that? probably about 2002, and then um, ran, their, um, ran the base metal business for them uh, for a number of years before I joined uh, TSECO in 2005.
0: And what did you like about TSECO? What made you come along to the company and take over like you've had for, for such this period of time?
1: Well, basically, I'm a British Columbia boy. Uh, I spent my whole career effectively running mining operations in British Columbia and Western Canada. So I kind of knew the lay of the land with, uh, with respect to the type of properties that uh, were available, the mining operations. If you look back at our key producing asset, the Gibraltar Mine, I knew the I knew many of the managers over the years of the operation. I'd been there a number of times over my career. Uh, I knew uh, the potential that, that the ore body had and and the and the asset that was available uh, to the Hunter Dickinson Group when they acquired it in 1999. So I thought in 2004. Uh, you know, I was 50 years old, 51. I had been with Tech for close to 25 years. I thought that uh, I'd take on another challenge and see what we could do with the uh, with the Gibraltar asset. Uh, that was the um, the start of that uh, of the past uh, 15, 16 years
0: I've been with the organization. And through your experience in the mining business, Russ and its expansive in terms of where what sectors you 've been in within the mining business, what have you found that works well and how does how does things work you know how How do you approach when we move between the ups and downs of these market cycles really, it comes down to people
1: you know the you can take some pretty marginal assets and and make them work if you have the right team and i don't mean just the right corporate team but i'm right, i mean the right operational team. Um, you know, I've always maintained that a company our size is never going to get tier one or tier two assets. We're going to be lucky to get a tier three asset. And so if you get a tier three or a tier four asset if you take the intellectual capital that you have in your organization, along with, you know, the skill sets that you try and put together, uh, you can take these assets and make them very financially successful. And true success is both, uh, uh, you know, both on the ground and uh, and for the communities in which they operate in. So I did that with Gibraltar when, when I got here in 2005. It was a concentrator and a mine that had been built in the early 70s. It had old technology. I mean... Uh, Technology has advanced incredibly in the last twenty five or thirty years, and we knew uh, you know the guys that uh, had come with me and were working with us we knew that we had to change the whole approach to concentrator performance and throughput uh, to ensure that we survived in the, you know during the cyclical nature of this business, so these places can do really, really well when the prices are high, and you what you have to do is ensure that you survive and can generate an operating profit when prices cycle back to lower uh, price
0: regimes, uh, like sort of like what they are now. Right, and let's, let's move on, let's talk about that for a moment. What thoughts do you have on the copper market today, and how does it compare to past cycle lows in regards to price and sentiment?
1: Well, I haven't really done a time value of money analysis on the price of copper, but in real terms, it's probably—I don't know—it's probably back in the dollar fifty, dollar thirty range. So you'd have to have your cost in the you know ninety cents or eighty cents uh, U.S. uh, C1 cost range. So now we're—you know—they predict uh, that—you know—everybody's talking about the long-term price of copper. Well, we're right at the long-term price of copper. The mean is right around—I think a lot of them. A lot of the analysts are saying it's like 2.75 to 3 bucks. Well, it's a little bit lower than that at this time. But what you have to do is just uh, look and develop your strategies based on what you think is a reasonable expectation of price. Not get too excited about the highs and not get too excited about the lows. But ensure you have proper operating metrics to ensure that you get by those lows and you really take advantage of, of the highs. If you look at our company, we are very, very leveraged to two things, and that's the price of copper and the Canadian US uh, dollar exchange rate. So, when things are good, we can generate a lot of cash very quickly. For example, when I was running Highland Valley Copper, responsible for Highland Valley Copper attack, one year we made $6 million in operating profit. And at that time, uh, that mine was probably the sixth or seventh largest copper concentrator in the world, producing three or 400 million pounds of copper. We made six or seven million dollars operating profit out of it. That year, the next year price of copper jumped and we took 500 million. and the following year we took 900 million dollars of free cash out of the operation. So the sensitivity of being in the right, having the right operating cost structure and then um, price you know, responding accordingly, uh, you generate a lot of cash for the shareholders very quickly.
0: Right. And how do you feel right now with with where Tosico is, the position of Tosico today versus what it looked like late 2015 in terms of share price and sentiment? Well,
1: it's always, you know, we're a far better company overall than we were back in those years. I mean, we've progressively grown the asset base of this company without risking the company on any downturns. And you see a a lot of companies at times will you know, roll the dice and the next thing, you know, acquire a property at the wrong timing, things go against them and that's the end of the company. So we've tried to stay between our means. We invested, we raised capital back, we expanded Gibraltar, Gibraltar became the key, you know, the the cornerstone asset for the company, generating cash, allowing us to move forward uh, and undertake both the, the expansion of Gibraltar, but also to acquire a few other assets and have cash available to invest in them. So if you look at the size of the company, irrespective of the market cap, which is a real obviously a concern for us because certainly our equity is one of the things that allows us to grow the company. And when you have poor equity value, you can't do any equity financings or you can't use both debt and equity to, to grow the company. You just have to use your um, cash flow on a conservative debt profile. But you have to look at uh, what we, how we've grown the company. I think exclusive of new prosperity, we have over 8 billion pounds of copper in reserves. Four hundred five hundred thousand ounces of gold in reserve uh, in our in our yellowhead property, and over twelve million pounds of molybdenum at Gibraltar in reserve, so we have this huge asset base that allows us a lot of flexibility in terms of what we can do moving forward without having to do equity dilutions. We can sell portions of our assets, we can sell joint ventures and that money can go into advancing these projects. We've been fortunate so far that we've been able to fund all of our work on Florence out of the cash we generate out of Gibraltar. Having said that, that can be a challenge when copper prices are where we are right now, but nonetheless we've been able to do it because we can generate, you know, for our portion of Gibraltar, you know, 150 200 million dollars of operating profits uh, keeps the company moving forward.
0: Well, let's talk about a few company specifics now that we are getting into it. Um, can you first tell us, give us a highlight overview of the management team there at Taseco and then tell us a little bit about the uh, the capital structure?
1: Yeah, well, the management team we're pretty we, we've got a pretty thin corporate office. We have. Uh, We've really prided ourselves on our technical expertise and also we have most of our senior staff are mining engineers. Uh, I'm a mining engineer. Our COO is a mining engineer. Our vice president of engineering is a mining engineer. Vice president of uh, projects is a metallurgical engineer and he's a very good engineer and he was the one that was responsible for capital projects and expansion of Gibraltar on time and on budget. And then we have a, a full cadre of metallurgical engineers so uh, we've got a and that's not taken away from any of the professional people on the finance side uh, which we're having a very excellent group there but we're pretty small corporate office but we're pretty focused on, on the things that we, the strengths we bring which is Financial discipline uh, and engineering expertise, and uh, just taking our, our time, ensuring that uh, we evaluate projects properly with the proper due diligence, so that we don't go into trying to build something that uh, is going to fail or that uh, we can't bring in on time and on budget. So, most of the fellows I've worked with, uh, either uh, at Tech in the old days uh, and or uh, new fellows we brought on board, folks we know um, and have personal uh, relationships with. So. We've got an excellent team to continue to move the company forward.
0: And tell us a little bit about the shares outstanding and also the cash and debt position.
1: We've got around $300 million debt and 230 or 40 million shares outstanding in our equity—I don't know what our equity's trading at, like 50 or 60 cents. Yeah, so we probably got a market cap of, you know, 130 million Canadians, somewhere in that neighborhood, 100 million U.S. Which is basically, if you look at it, if you work back and did the long-range price of copper analysis on Gibraltar, that's probably our 75% of it's probably worth close to a billion dollars pre-tax. So there's, you know, we're trading at a fraction of the value of Gibraltar, irrespective of what the value of the reserves are. Uh, with the rest of our development projects, so uh, to say, it's a little frustrating from our perspective uh, as uh, the senior executive team in terms of what what our equity um, is worth uh, over time. That takes care of itself if we execute properly. There's, you know, not a lot we can do at times uh, on that matter, but uh, sooner or later it gets recognized in the market. The perfect example was way back uh, in about 2009, 2010. Just after the financial crisis, uh, our equity was trading about 350 million bucks. I ended up selling 25% of Gibraltar to a Japanese consortium of a major trading company and uh, and two uh, smelter companies for um, 25% for just under 190 million. Uh, That that equated, you know, so that was a third-party validation of what the value of Gibraltar was independently, and our equity moved from 350 to over close to 600 million dollars just like that. Once we had that third-party valuation. So what we see in the market today, the capital marks today, is not in indicative of the value of the underlying assets. I mean, even if you give eight billion pounds of reserves, these aren't resources. These aren't, you know, etheric things in the ground. These are resort reserves that have had uh, have feasibility studies on them, have NPVs, and even if you take that those reserves and and give them a nominal value of pennies on the per pound, it still is far in excess of our of our equity value today. So certainty that uh, these uh, this value will be unlocked in the not too distant future.
0: Well, yeah, Russ, and it's really is truly really a, a pennies on the dollar uh, situation, which adds to the attractiveness on it. Um, can you can you tell us just a little bit? Uh, is there some key shareholders you want to highlight, and is there anything that management's doing at these current share levels to to align themselves further with shareholders? Yeah, we have a number of shareholders that vary between oh, I don't know. Two or
1: three or four uh, percent of the equity, up to maybe eight, ten percent. We're wi- widely held. There's no controlling shareholder per se, but there's a lot of shareholder. You know, we have a lot of aligned shareholders that uh, understand. You know, the company is in better shape. Like you know, 24 months ago, our stock price was three dollars per share, and today it's you know fifty or sixty cents, talking Canadian dollars. So there's lots of people that see the inherent value in the company, and and it's like what's gone on with the Western Canadian oil patch, there's no reflection of the value of the assets in the ground versus uh, what the equity trading for. But sooner or later, that takes care of itself.
0: Absolutely. Now, I, I think that there'll be some, some future respect for, for what's being done over there at Tosico. So how are things uh, – let's, let's move to project by project here. How are things going at Or Can you give us an update uh, on how things are operating there?
1: Well, Gibraltar's
0: very stable, you know,
1: after we did the expansion and, and started running at 85,000 tons a day, you know, it, it's a big operation, you know, we're going to produce between 130 and 145 million pounds of copper, you know, 60 to 5 to 70,000 tons of metal a year for the next 20 years in the reserve. We probably have another 15 years of resources beyond that, and we still haven't finished drilling out. We don't need 50 years of resources, so we still have plenty of, you know, runway on that uh, ore body. And, uh, you know, and it's such a great ore body. I mean, sure, sure, the grade is a little uh, lower than uh, lots of places, but you have to look at what your costs are in reverse as to what your rock value is. And, you know, we've been maintaining our costs between 10 and 11 bucks per ton milled, and uh, the gross metal value of the rock can go from anywhere from 15 to $20 a tonne. So if it's at twenty dollars a ton, we got nearly a hundred percent margin on our costs side. So uh, we're very comfortable with that. We're we're training our people. We we have a very stable senior workforce up there. We bring in new engineers and new managers, and yeah, it's uh, going as well as we can expect, and it'll continue to generate good operating profit e- even at these um, copper prices. So it bodes well for the future when copper prices. I mean, the leverage is so you know copper prices go up thirty. 10 or 15 or 30 cents a pound, 10%, uh, that all flows right to the bottom line because of our cost structure. And then that obviously allows us to uh, use that cash and those technical, the technical expertise we have at the mine site to move on our other projects as well
0: and based on current operations can you uh, can you share with us what you're seeing for for all in cost per pound copper and are there any optimization efforts ongoing or do you have really gibraltar is really running about as lean as it gets
1: there are always things you can do you know new technology you know advancements we're looking at we're always looking at we're looking at things all the time uh, in terms of you know, increasing throughput uh, you know if, if you can increase throughput by three or four or five thousand tons a day well that that equates to probably ten to fifteen to twenty million tons of extra copper a year, which would all flow flow to the bottom line. Uh, you look at how we do our pit designs and we're we 're constantly refining our haulage route, trying to shorten the hauls, just a whole slew of activities that are, are never-ending. When you're mining a mine like Gibraltar or, running a, or mining an ore body like Gibraltar, you always have to be looking for opportunities to take advantage of uh, flowing value to the bottom line. So we do that steady, steady. We always assign a certain amount of our budget yearly for cost improvement initiatives uh, and other things that will enhance the productivity of the mine. Specifically, I mean, you know, when I started, we had we had 240 ton trucks. Now we've got 330 ton trucks. So that's a huge difference uh, in terms of capacity, uh, unit cost reductions. Engines are getting, you know, we're running 3,000 horsepower uh, engines now, and they're they're probably getting the same fuel economy as the older generation 2200 horsepower engine so we're saving on that we're just like i said it's just ongoing. ongoing andrew
0: and going forward i think you already covered it so i guess i won't ask too much more but it sounds like you guys have plenty of mine life uh expansion ahead of you so there's not really any any need at this point to expend capital doing anything on that front is that correct
1: yes yeah we stick some holes around See if we can, you know, find some more mineralization that would be closer to uh, inherent pits right now that we could expand on. But generally speaking, uh, yeah, we've we've got the runway set for a while, and uh, and then we'll just look at what we want to do longer term. I guess we could always, and we have talked about this whether we could. Uh, when we built the second concentrator, we always looked as a as it was a bolt on. So the sag mill is big enough, it's big enough power to run more throughput. All we have to do is bolt on another ball mill, and we can increase the throughput considerably. But we always look at that. You're going to have you have to look at how your mining sequences work, how you release ore. Uh, you don't want to screw up. Say, okay, well, we're going to expand, but then you find out your costs go up by 20% because you can't release your ore properly. So it's, right. it's a fine balance between throughput, you know, mine design, mine efficiencies.
0: And tell us a little bit about the 25% Japanese partner at Gibraltar. Uh, what is the importance of this partner, and do you see them with further involvement in other Toseco projects going forward? The trading house is company's name is called
1: Sojits. It's a it's a it's a publicly listed company in Japan. It's probably the fourth or fifth largest trading house behind Mitsubishi and Sumitomo and some of those other ones. I've known a lot of the senior executives for well over 20 years, so that's one of the reasons that we came to an early agreement on Gibraltar and as a partner. Generally speaking, you always want to have a smelter group that's buying your concentrate as opposed to selling uh, it all on the spot market or to traders. So uh, That partnership is good. We know that they're picking up X number of tons every month or every two months. We have a good working relationship with them. They help fund uh, capital expenditures. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure about their strategic direction as a, as an organization. I don't know whether they're more or less interested in, in carrying on copper business or lead zinc business or any of those other businesses because they ebb and flow in and out of those businesses, you know, Japanese trading companies. So uh, we'll see whether we have opportunities that they're interested in. And if they're interested in that, we, they would make a very
0: good partner. Well, I appreciate the insights on that. Let's move over to Florence Copper in Arizona. Tell us a little bit about the project, why it attracted TSECO, and how was the advancement work going on the ground there?
1: We knew about Florence for a long time. Uh, our technical group had had some discussions with them way back when about maybe joint venturing with them. Uh, they were a public company. you know, It was floated. They had purchased the uh, the property from a land developer a number of years ago. God, it's got to be getting pretty close to 10, 12 years ago now. And it always struck us as, uh, as a very interesting concept, but being a, what do you call it, risk-averse technical group, we were a little bit uncertain at the time whether it could uh, it would something that fit in our in our bellywax so to speak and at that time we were looking at projects all over western north america and into south america and trying to find one that would fit with our capabilities but also fit financially with you know we didn't want a 2 or 3 billion dollar project we didn't want to have to go out try and raise a whole bunch of money and find partners and stuff and those ones are are harder to uh, acquire at a reasonable cost. So when the time came that we thought that the equity was well enough priced, that they had advanced the project uh, far enough, then uh, then we, we did due diligence on it. Probably took over a year for us to do the due diligence, uh, checking all the you know the legal issues, uh, checking uh, the technical work that had been done by BHP and Conoco and the other uh, owners prior to uh, Curis acquiring it. We spent a lot of time and came to a conclusion that this uh, the property. Would fit into our you know financial framework, it had uh, lots of opportunity to be a low cost producer, and uh, we felt that the technology was there and the componentry of the ore body was there that would allow it to be successful. Having said that, we had a few challenges from from the local community who uh, felt that they were the the, the watershed or the uh, you know the aquifer was not going to be protected. Uh, we worked uh, diligently with the EPA and the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality. We've worked through all those issues. Uh, you know, well over a year ago, we completed our production test facility, drilled the well field, the production test field well field, and uh, we've been actively injecting solution into the ore body, uh, this area of the ore body. Uh, and it's been leaching fantastic. Uh, we're really happy with the advancements we're seeing, and this production test facility is actually a commercial scale facility. So lots of times when you build something, you know, you like if let's say it's an open pit mine, you do all the metallurgical based test work, uh, you know, at bench scale, and then you go and build the mine, and then it takes you a year or two to bottleneck it. Well. We're actually doing a lot of the de-bottlenecking right now uh, with the, this test facility. We're, we're learning how the copper uh, will electrowind. win uh, We're producing uh, close to uh, 2,000 ppm of uh, pregnant solution coming out of the ground, which is the commercial-grade solutions. Our main well that we're recovering copper from is producing roughly nearly, on an annualized basis, nearly 700,000 pounds of copper right now. Yeah, things are going uh, Uh, We had some setbacks and we've had to regroup, but that's all part of the learning process. You know, we have. These deep wells. This hasn't been done too many times in the world with this kind of configuration, and so we're learning how where, how you disperse the the acid solution inside the ore body, how you move it up, how you control the uh, the water gradient, and how you recover the uh, the pregnant solution. So it's a it's a complex technical issue, and uh, but our guys are doing a great job in understanding it, and our, and our and our knowledge of what we have to do is. Is just increasing every single day, so we'll be we'll be providing the market an update on this uh, shortly. So we're pretty we're pretty excited of how it's going, and with respect to the, you know the final operational permits, we're dealing with the Environmental Protection Agency and the Arizona Department of Environment Quality right now, taking the temporary operating permits and converting them into uh, amendments, so we get our final operating permits, and we expect by sometime next summer, early spring, summer, that will be complete. And then my board can make a production decision to spend the money to build the facility.
0: And so yeah, Florence is supposed to be one of the the least capital intensive major copper projects. Can you tell us, if you can share with us, Russ, uh, what do you see as, as, as costs out there per pound copper once optimal production is reached? And can you share with us your plan for the financing package?
1: I think from the feasibility study, It was a dollar ten a pound, all in costs. Uh, C1, well, C1 cost, but we're producing actually cathode copper, so uh, that will be updated as we gather more information from this uh, test facility. But you know, let's say a dollar ten to a dollar twenty a pound, uh, give or take, you know, a nickel, probably reasonable to expect. So when that comes on stream, that will help lower our overall costs from Gibraltar to a, a weighted average cost for the whole corporate entity is. We'll probably be down in the dollar forty, dollar fifty a pound range, and so that will be good path forward for the organization uh, to develop our rest of our assets. How we finance that? Again, I spoke a little earlier about because we have these reserves and resources, we're able to, uh, you know, attract investors. So we're working on either straight debt financing uh, at some point, you know, uh, some point. Uh, or bringing in a partner, so we'll decide what cost of capital is best for us and how our balance sheet looks with respect to that. I mean, it's not a big nut uh, in terms of the total capital costs. Uh, we're probably looking at a little over $200 million US, and with the cost profile that is predicted, uh, I'm sure when banks hire independent engineers to look at it, we'll fit into the risk profile in terms of uh, being able to borrow uh, money at uh, conventional debt rates. And uh, or uh, or we sell 10 or 15 or 20 percent of it to help ensure that our balance sheet stays in good shape. So we have lots of irons in the fire with respect to that.
0: And Russ, do you think you can? How much do you think you can strip off of Gibraltar uh, cash flow to help to help carry this along?
1: Well, that's a good question. If it's like four bucks a pound, it's a lot of cash flow. <laughs> if it's right. if it's we're, well, we're funding everything right now. I don't, you know, we probably have a break-even budget right now of funding about thirty million dollars of operating expenditures at, at Florence out of the out of the cash we generate at, uh, at Jib. So we're, you know, we're paying our debt. Paying our interest, we're paying that, and, and we got extra 30 or 40 million dollars to invest into uh, Florence. You know, if the price goes up a buck a pound, then you know we got another 110 million dollars net uh, to our account. So, in this business, six months is an eternity. You know, so um, anything can change. Uh, we saw it happen before. Copper, copper can run very quickly, and when that happens, we can uh, generate a lot of operating profit that can go towards these projects.
0: And, Russ, you're not foreseeing any issues uh, with your current schedule to finance and build this out and, and convert the permits. There's no foreseeable issues with meeting your schedule you guys have laid out?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, other than normal course business and, and other than what happens with the copper price or, you know, what happens with world economies. But I, I think steady state, uh, yeah, we're we're not seeing any cumberments. We're just moving forward uh, steadily, working on on everything
0: that's involved, and it's a lot. Once this comes on for us, once Florence comes online and is up at at uh, nameplate, do you really see that that stage is that milestone is really really a a pretty big game changer for Tisco? So
1: let's say we were able to do it ourselves, you know, 100%. That's 80 million pounds of copper. Then Gibraltar's, you know, to our accounts, 100, 110 million. So now suddenly we're going to 100. We've got nearly 200 million pounds of annual copper production, and then that would seg- segue us right in, into building Yellowhead, which will be another big development, uh, open pit development, 80, 90,000 tons a day, generating, I think, uh, our new plan's probably close to 180, 190 million pounds of copper annually at a very decent C1 cost. So. Yeah, it's just a it's a progression, you know. These things take a long time to get to uh, where they should be, but that's why my thesis has always been: you have to have long-term reserves. You can't have a five or six-year mine life to build a company. You need years of reserves. You need at least two decades, and then have in your pipeline mines that have decades beyond those to go, so that you can actually build that wealth. These these places that have six or seven years you just turn around and you're looking where where are we gonna get the next reserves from.
0: Right. And Russ, we expect you're not going anywhere anytime soon, correct?
1: Well I am sixty five, so I'm sixty six at Christmas time. So <laughs> but we running out running the rope out to its end here. But yeah, we got this and that that nobody no investor should be ever worried about this because one of the things that we have is we've have a very strong secession plan here the guys that are coming behind, uh, you know, the older guys. It's uh, it's a very strong group, and there'll, there'll be no shortcomings with any of uh, of those fellows in terms of the operational and the technical side of the business. We have a strong financial group now with our. Our new president, CFO, who's a strong chartered accountant and have lots of business acumen, dropping down through our ranks. uh, You know, our new vice president of operations and all the new guys that we've brought into the office to fill the void behind us is, uh, is pretty impressive. So I'm pretty happy with what we've done in the last
0: year or two. Well, with the stubbornness of, of yourself and management, I, I suspect you guys will keep keep moving along here quite steadily. So, once Florence is nailed down, all efforts are going over to Yellowhead. So, what's what's tell us about Yellowhead? Tell us what's going on there.
1: Well, Yellowhead it was a great acquisition for this company. I originally invested, uh, I, I put a private investment into into the company. Cause I knew the I knew the folks that were running it. They were a little tight for cash. I think it was about 6 or 7 years ago I bought about 10% of the company we put a 5 or 6 million dollars we weren't sure exactly on the reserve or reserves whether they had done enough drilling remember it was a junior company remember I talked about our guys being risk averse you know I took that little dip the toe in the water and did an investment and part of that investment was they had to put most of the money into drilling so they drilled out uh, some gaps in their ore body and uh, we were pretty comfortable with it, and then we just sat there and watched because uh, we had other things on the go. We had Florence on the go. We had Gibraltar work, da 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 da, and we watched how they uh, unfolded their business plan. And uh, they didn't have much success. You know, the market cap originally started at about 120 million dollars, went to 60 million dollars, went to 20 million dollars, and it ended up at about two or three million bucks. And it was mostly controlled by a private investor out of uh, out of Calgary. And I'd known the gentleman for a number of years and we decided to come to agreement and, and we acquired the property and put it in our stable. And now, right now, we're working on on uh, doing an updated feasibility. There was a feasibility done on it. It was a um, 20-year mine life. It's got a big ore body, almost uh, 700 million, 750 million tons. We knew from our engineering Early engineering work that we could decrease the cutoff a bit, increase the throughput, and have a heck of a good mine. And uh, we're right in the process of doing an updated feasibility study and an updated 43101 as we speak. And I'm not sure when we'll have that report out, but uh, we've definitely increased the MPV considerably and we're pretty excited about what it's going to entail. So sequentially, it's going to fall, you know, after Florence, we get Florence. Commissioned and running, and we'll be. And during that interim period, we will have our business done on uh, Yellowhead, so that we're ready to go uh, with that once everything comes together on Florence. So it's a nice segue here down the
0: road. Yeah, no, it's it's well placed. It's it's the the, the pieces of the puzzle are are quite well aligned. And and if you have Florence on, this is going to only make Yellowhead even easier. What do you see as the main challenge at Yellowhead? Is it the build out? Is it the permitting, the community relations? What do you see here as a challenge?
1: Well, you know, over the years, the thing, you know, like in most uh, jurisdictions in the world, it's all about government relations, community relations, particularly in Western Canada here now, it's about First Nations relations. Um, so all those things, as it's not the technical side of the equation anymore. Before it used to be the technical side and those you know, those were the afterthoughts. Now those are the forefront thought and the afterthoughts are the ore body. We know the ore body is going to perform well. We know we can make a mine out of it. We just have to have everybody from provincial government, the federal government, to the First Nations, to the local communities all aligned. Certainly there there's always challenges there, uh, but I think people start to recognize that the amazing impact one big base metal mine can have not just on a local community, but the whole region. You know, if you look at what uh, Gibraltar has done in the Central caribou, we're the largest employer from Prince George to uh, to Hunter Mile House, and you know that economic outflow is is tremendous. For you know, when we're spending three hundred million dollars a year in parts and services and others, uh, that has a big outflow into the communities, and that's the same kind of thing that will happen with Yellowhead. So, the challenges will be no greater or less than they, we've ever experienced. It'll just be There and they and we'll just have to knock them off and deal with them as we go through the process.
0: Right. And and how does how does 2025 still look in your schedule book for Yellowhead? Is that something that that obviously is probably I would think
1: I would think that's probably a reasonable expect you know expectation that we'd be start moving on it 2024 2025 somewhere in that neighborhood.
0: Okay, that sounds good, and and I think that uh, we could probably figure that copper prices will be will be doing well by then well let's let's move on so let's let's assume that this continues on here and and you also have other things going on at the same time here let's Let's move on to the next monster in the room and and that's new prosperity. Can you tell the audience about this project and what you guys are working on here?
1: Well, New Prosperity, yeah, it's uh, discovered in the 50s, kind of gone back normally from discovery to uh, construction and operation for major porphyries in the world. It's about 18 to 20 years somewhere in that neighborhood. So we've kind of stretched past that limit. Uh, Some of uh, a lot of our issues have been First Nations relations in the context of First Nations politics in the area. Uh, We are diligently just working through some of the courts, some of the court process, discussions with government. About how to move the thing forward, uh, discussions at some point, we hope, with First Nations. Uh, one of the important things that we have to realize is that over time, when we first started this process 12, 13, 14 years ago on New Prosperity Moving, it, the copper, our reserves were done at a dollar 60 copper and 600 ounce gold, and the MPV was like 350 or 400 million. Well, right now, if you use 275 copper and fourteen hundred gold, the MPV is probably north of close to four billion dollars. So the mere fact that we haven't built a mine has not should not take away from the fact that the MPV and the value of the uh, of the inherent asset hasn't increased. Uh so our plan is just to stick with it and, and to keep doing what we need to do and hopefully uh Everyone will see that the value developing and building new prosperity is uh, will flow to everyone. It'll flow to the First Nations communities. It'll flow to the local inhabitants of the caribou. It'll flow to the provincial government. It'll flow to this company. So it, it's, it takes some time, but it is what it is
0: and russ how, how important is this asset for toseco because from what i can tell there's literally zero value reflected in the share price for this asset can you tell us about the importance and can you share with us a bit on the strategy going forward especially considering that the gold price will probably cooperate to support more efforts on getting this project momentum going
1: well obviously if this said if we had been able to build a mine and been operating in today's environment you know we'd be producing over 300,000 ounces of gold a year and 150 million pounds of copper this thing would be generating well over a billion dollars a year in operating profit it would it would have a huge impact on this company it would have a huge impact on any company not just this company i mean it's the 10th largest undeveloped copper gold porphyry in the world so it's not you know, I think there's 13 million ounces of gold in the resource and 6 billion pounds of copper. So it's a huge asset for the people of British Columbia and for this company. So, yeah, but when you get uh, diving and trying to advance some of these things, and you see them in other parts of the world as well, the, the companies have to have irons in the fire to do other things to uh, continue to build the company. And as you can see, yeah, we were really optimistic that we were going to get the opportunity to build new prosperity. When it didn't happen, we just moved in onto other. Uh, onto these other assets that would give us an opportunity and keep looking for other ones that uh, add the pipeline for us uh, out for 20, 30, or 40 years. Because sooner or later, new prosperity will be a mine. And sooner or later, I believe that uh, the First Nations in the area will recognize how important it is to their ultimate well-being and their cultural abilities to maintain their culture and move forward with what, everything they want to do with respect to um, you know, what kind of contributions they will get from the mine uh, from it being operating so there's there's all these trade offs so i think we'll see something in the in the coming future
0: it's not like we don't talk about it all the time with the government well no and i and i just think that jaseco is is demonstrating operational ability those those corporate responsibility relations the whole mess i mean it's not like you guys are are are, you guys are there in bc you guys are doing multiple things in bc you're working out of arizona there's a lot to it and what do you see there i mean we talked about yellowhead earlier about challenges what do you see as really kind of key challenges you guys are are no longer concerned about the operational ability is it really just kind of getting the federal government and provincial government and the first nations on board yeah,
1: I think, you know, well, you just see it in general resource development today. There's a lot of people uh, are involved with the decision-making process. It's just not the companies. I mean, if you look in Western Canada, the pipeline issues, whether it's LNG in Western Canada, you look at anything with resources on the ground. Parties are the companies, the First Nations, and the two levels of government, and maybe more levels of government, whether it's be regional district or local communities. So once you add that into the, into you know, it's just not going out there, okay, we got an ore body and we can build a mine and everybody's happy you have to bring all these various communities together of like mind and say okay what what's the best for society as a whole now you know we we've been pillarized a bit because of our appears to be our our position with respect to the first nations issue in the caribou but what people don't understand is we have one, two, three, three or four different First Nations agreements uh ranging from our Niobium project in northern BC to the relationships of First Nations around Gibraltar. And we're working on the on the relationship with the one that and the deal uh with the one on Yellowhead. So, you know, it's it's just like life. Uh sometimes you don't get along with your neighbors because your neighbor wants to build a hundred foot fence and you don't want to. Have that inter- interfere with your view. So, you know, everybody's got their own opinions at times, and you just have to try and work through it to find out what mutually works for everybody.
0: And what are you guys doing there as far as community relations on the project? Are you guys? What's kind of the approach? I know, Russ, you guys know this stuff. I mean, there's there's other companies in Alaska doing this. There's there's plenty plenty of efforts here. What 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 is a few specifics you can share with the audience?
1: I can't share a lot of specifics because some of the discussions are confidential, but certainly the regional communities know the importance of of new prosperity up there and our ongoing uh, relationships with um, the Ministry of Mines and and the Ministry of Environment and the uh, First Nations Ministry in British Columbia are are ongoing, so they just take time to work through.
0: Right, and and you you guys are demonstrating that ability through your other operations. So how about how about the other assets you mentioned them just a little bit uh, Harmony and Alley what is the plan for these assets?
1: Company our size we can just take on so many opportunities uh, Harmony is a very it's a different it's out in the archipelago at ha- Haida Gwaii quite a different First Nations dynamics out there with the Haida uh, we just have uh, too much on our plate at this time to worry too much about that so we just keep kept keeping our claims in good standing. As far as Ali is concerned, it's the third largest niobium deposit in the world. Uh, we're trying to find an off-take partner. It's very hard on these special metal developments to just say, OK, I'm going to build a mine and I'm going to sell the product. It's not like copper where there's a market. You have to have an end user. So we have to try and find somebody that would, say, take 50% of our material and that way we could market the other 50%. So you have to ha- almost have a take or pay arrangement. and. Uh, there's lots of steel mills in the world uh, there I was just reading the Roscoe report today where obviously niobium consumption has increased dramatically for any number of reasons. a lot of them have to do with particularly in China have to do with the reduction of not not the total reduction of steel but uh, they could make with high. High-strength, low-alloy steels, niobium, you can reduce the amount of steel you have to produce because one ton of niobium-type steel will replace about two tons of of just normal conventional steel, it's using other other uh, hardening and strengthening products. So it can have a very there's a hu- there could be potentially a huge market out there. Chinese are are not as uh, niobium intensive as the more mature economies of Europe and the United States in terms of using niobium, but it will in turn come. So we just uh, you know we've got we're right in the process. We've, we're doing a big bench uh, test now and making metal. Again, it's not the technical side. We've got Pat on the metallurgy now because each of these ore bodies is distinct and you have to work through your uh, metallurgy. You know, Frankly, if you look back four or five years, we didn't even think it was going to be a mine because the metallurgy was so complex, but uh, we've made some major breaks. It takes years to work through these things to come up with the the solutions on how you uh, develop concentrate and then how you... uh, Uh, reduce it into a metal form. And uh, we have some patents on those and we know that works. So now we're making metal in the uh, test facility and back east and uh, we'll have a marketable product now. So we're continuing to work on that and looking for either a joint venture partner, primarily a steel mill or some other third party that's prepared to uh, invest in the project. So we're just pecking along on that as well.
0: Well, it's a substantial a lot of a lot of assets, and you've got a lot on your plate. Are those are those last two Harmony and Alley? Are those two assets, uh, if the right buyer came along and the right deal, uh, are those assets that you guys would look to monetize to focus on the core assets?
1: Yes, we could do that for sure, and we always evaluate that. We haven't had many people show interest at this juncture, but that doesn't mean that that's not going to change, uh, change just like that.
0: Russ, tell us about the long-term view of TSECO. Is, is the company really just going to continue as, a, as an operating company and, and build bigger and bigger? Or is there is there a thought in the back of management's mind about takeover offers? Uh, is, is that anything that uh, you guys want to do or you just want to keep being operators?
1: Yeah, well, you want to be an operator, but you also want to have your equity. I mean, I'm a large shareholder in this company as long as everybody else with lots of other folks and uh you know, the shareholders speak with respect to opportunities to sell, you know, either be taken over or bought out or whatever you want to look at, but it's got to be off the base that recognizes the inherent value of of the assets not off of the equity in the market because right. everybody says, "Well, Jesus, the market is efficient." Well, it's not that efficient <laughs> as you can see. So <laughs> It's just there doesn't seem to be many buyers out there that actually are recognizing it. They'd rather buy the Fang stocks, I guess, or something else, but or Shopify or something. I don't know. But uh, you know, yeah, I just have to look. I'm I'm a mining engineer, but uh, I'm pragmatic about the fact that you know if this if this entity is in a larger company, but it would be good for the employees yes probably um, but would it be good for the shareholders well not if our equity is trading at 0.2 of our nav of Gibraltar and let alone not having anything to do with any of the other assets that we've worked for the last 15 years to acquire so that's right. basically in a nutshell we're an, we're an operator until until we're not i guess
0: Yes, and, and there's some tremendous value that's that's sitting here in the market. Mm-hmm. So I'm struggling to come up with producers in the Taseco peer group mm-hmm. with similar market capitalization, maybe maybe a Copper Mountain, maybe an, an Aero Copper. Why is Taseco superior at these levels, and why should investors get involved now? What would you say to potential investors listening?
1: Well, that's a very good question, Andrew, because that's what you have to look at. Everybody, we get cap-
0: capsulated into these
1: groups, you know. Copper Mountain, Capstone, us, Imperial. Aero's kind of on its own there because of their high-quality asset in Brazil, which uh, which has kind of taken the market uh, sentiment uh, uh, for a ride there, and, and they've done very well. Uh, but if you, if you compare us to those other entities, then I go back and you have to look at the core assets that those folks have in their portfolio of assets. They don't have the quality of assets. They don't have, so they have no segue on how to move forward in terms of monetizing any of those assets. What could we ultimately? We get a First Nations agreement on Yellowhead. We know that we have this huge ore body. How much is a a 30% asset sale worth in that kind of context for a copper project that has, you know, a 750-800 million pound ore body and is going to produce? or ton of our body, I'm going to produce 3 or 4 billion pounds of copper over this life. Well, it's well we see what happens. You know, uh, Sumitomo bought into Covada Blanca for well over close to $2 billion for 30%. And you see it time and time again. Companies uh, Look at what the Koreans had in, in Cobra Panama. So the, once you have the asset, you have the feasibility study, and you have the agreements with governments and First Nations and you have the EA. Just think about what you can sell portions of these assets for in a competitive market. You see it all the time. And that then gives you the equity to build the mine or do whatever you need to do with respect to increasing shareholder value.
0: Absolutely. I agree. And there's there's uh, some some good stuff coming, in my view. Well, Russell, how can uh, interested investors reach out to the company if they seek more information?
1: There's a lot of information on our on our obviously on our website, it's pretty good stuff. Most of the salient uh, information that uh, you need to understand with respect to reserves and resources, and I think it's good for folks to you know c- compare those. I mean, if if you're going to invest in this sort of intermediate market, you have got to compare what we have versus what Copper Mountain has, versus what Imperial has, whoever you want to say has. I mean, we have. The, the kind of reserves and resources that none of those companies have. And I actually, we have some of the reserves and resources that go into larger companies into the second-tier type category and just not sort of lower-tier companies like us. So people have to look at that and then a- a- understand that and then reach out to uh, Vice President of Investor Relations, Brian Bergo. Uh, he, he's up to speed on all these, and he can walk folks if they're interested uh, all the, the various uh, our projects and where we're at.
0: Well, Russ, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. We appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us about TSECO and, the, and really the tremendous opportunity that we have before us. Good luck, and, and we look forward to having you back for future updates.
1: Well, thanks very much for uh, inviting me on, and I really appreciate the questions. They were interesting and well thought out, and good luck with your program going forward.